This one follows off from the first reading. So Mark chapter 10, from 17 all the way to 34. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again he took his twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the word of God. Uh, as we begin, I want to say a really big thank you to the church, uh, to the missions committee, uh, to Chris, uh, for your support of us, for Eric and I personally and your support of the ministry at Deakin, uh, at University Ministry there. We're very, very grateful. Thank you for including us on, on this list. Ours has been somewhat modified by Isabel, but I'm sure we still care for everyone below April. Um, but, but sincerely, a really big thanks for your support. The ministry simply can't go on uh, without the financial support of churches like this one and the prayer support of many of you, so a really big thank you. Uh, but with that, let's pray and enjoy this really wonderful part of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've not left us in the dark uh, to discover you for ourselves. You've come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've spoken of uh, of him in your word to us. 
Our Father, this morning we pray we would take this word of yours to heart. Uh, particularly, are we in the West, in Australia and in this suburb? Uh, please uh, break us down, Father, drive us to our knees again and remind us of our absolute dependence on our wonderful, loving Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I think one of my all-time favourite stories is about a teacher who goes into a classroom to teach the class about the dangers of alcohol. And she goes into the class and she puts two glasses on the table. And one she fills with orange juice and the other she fills with beer. And she takes a little bottle out of her case and from out of the bottle she takes a tiny worm and she drops it into the glass with the orange juice. And the worm sort of swims around very happily, swimming however worms do. And as she reaches back in again, another little glass, another worm, and she drops this one into the beer. This worm also swims, but just for a second or two until it sort of shudders, stiffens, and then drops very dead to the bottom of the glass. Very confidently, the lady then turns to the class and she says, Class! What do we learn here today? Quick as a flash, the guy at the back of the room raised his hand and says, Miss, if you don't want to get worms, drink lots and lots of beer. Um, well, I tell you that story. It's not because I'm trying to encourage more alcohol consumption. Um, I tell it because, among other things, I think it demonstrates the fact Very often the questions we ask in life are met with the answers we least expect. In fact, I think very often the best questions we ask in life are met with the answers we least expect. That's going to be true for all sorts of things, but I think it's especially true for our questions about God. Questions like the one we ask ourselves this morning, and that's this. What does God... Think about our performance. What does God really think about your performance? So the fact is, you and I live in a world where performance matters, doesn't it? A world where if you don't make the grade, you don't make the team. Or you don't pass the test. Or you don't get the promotion. Or you don't win the election. In work, sport, study, relationships, our lives are measured by their performance. Just a few weeks ago, three of my children brought home their school reports. Right there in front of me, there in black and white, a permanent record of their performance. You know, I can still remember very clearly the day that my mother brought out one of my father's old school reports to show us and the children. Would do well if he applied himself, it said. It's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free for my brother from that time on. Of course, it's not just at school, is it? As you and I know, as my children will soon learn, this is everything. I heard an old song on the radio on my drive home from a uni event just this week. It was a song I knew when I grew up. What was it called? It was called A Teenage Guide to Popularity. What was its lesson? The chorus of of the song told the story. It says this, I'm the head of the class. I'm popular. I'm the quarterback. I'm popular. My mum says I'm a catch. I'm popular. I'm never last picked. I got a cheerleader chick. 
And I want to say that's the exact same lesson you and I have learned in every sphere of life. It's the exact same way you and I have learned to play this game of life. If you want to be popular, then you've got to perform. If you want success, then you need to impress. If you want to be liked, then you need to be likeable. If you want to please, you better be pleasing. And the question we asked this morning is, is that how it is with God? In a world where performance matters, what does God really think about your performance? Well, we find out part of the answer in the section of the Bible that was read for us earlier. Uh, there, a man, uh, Mark chapter 10, if you don't have it open, please open it. We're going to work through the verses. Mark chapter 10, we're going to pick it up from verse 17, where a man comes to Jesus with a very insightful question. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and then he fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to say that's a very insightful question for two reasons, I think. First, because it sees past the hundreds of other questions that you and I deal with every day to the question that really matters, the question that has to be asked. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who once said, the statistics on death are really quite impressive. One out of every one person dies. And the fact is, even if we live to be 150 we're going to spend a whole lot longer on the other side of death as what we spend on this side. And I take it this fellow realises that, so he asks the question that has to be asked. How do I get ready for what comes next? How do I get into, how do I stay in his good books? So it's an insightful question because it asks the question that really matters. And, and it's an insightful question because in the way that it's asked... It gives away what I think this man, and I also think lots of us, think the answer is. Did you hear it? In the way that was asked? Look again, good teacher, verse 17. What must I do? In a world where performance matters, good teacher, what must I perform? What do you want from me to get in and to stay in your good Books. Now I wonder for a moment how you would answer that question. Imagine we could teleport you into the passage and fairly rarely into Jesus' sandals just for a moment. How would you answer this man's question? Or better yet, how do you answer this man's question in your average day to day? As you imagine God's acceptance of you day by day, as you imagine God's opinion of you day by day. What is it that lifts it up? What is it that brings it down? You wake up in the morning and for once you remember the quiet time. You make time for the quiet time. Does God's opinion go up? You wake up in the morning and you yell at your kids. You yell at your kids again. Does God's opinion go down? You come along to church. You sign up for a growth group. Does God's opinion go up? Or you go onto the internet and you look Again, what you know you shouldn't look at again. Does God's opinion go down? See, good teacher, the man asks, what must I do? 
I want to say it's a very insightful question. I want to say it comes with a completely unexpected response. Did you see it? In a world where performance matters, Jesus says, we're going to see, yours doesn't. When it comes to getting right with God, staying right with God, it is not about what you do. It's about who you depend on. It is not about how you live. It's about who you live for. See there in verse 18, Jesus points out the difference between this man and God. No one is good, he says. No one except God alone. See, if you are hoping to be right with God because of your goodness, he says, you better have a plan B. Because when it comes to getting right with God, being good enough is never enough. And to drive the point home, you notice, Jesus points the man to all those commandments, verse 19. And I take it not to give him a list to tick off or a standard to perform, which is often how we read those commandments, isn't it? But instead, I think, to use them as God intended them to be used to show to this man, as to us, the hopelessness of trying to achieve our way into God's good books. Even if, like this guy, you've got everything going for you. I mean, this bloke here really does have everything going for him, doesn't it? Did you see it? Did you hear how he was described? Verse 17. He's someone who runs to Jesus, falls before him. That's got to be good. Verse 20, he's someone who keeps God's law. You notice Jesus doesn't say he doesn't. That's got to be good. Verse 22, he's rich. I think that's got to be good. And then Luke, in his version of this story, says he's also young and he's also a ruler. He's a guy with status, integrity, morality, money. In the game of life, the guy's a winner. In the scale of life, he's got straight A's. And yet for even this guy, Jesus' point is his performance is not enough. See, as good as he is, do you notice verse 21? There is one thing he lacks. Why is that? Because I take it because being right with God, it's not about what you do, it never is. It's about who you depend on. It always is. See, it's just as Jesus told his disciples in that part of the Bible that was read for us first, the first Bible reading. In fact, we read it together. Uh, that part of Mark chapter 10 from verse 13. We often think, I think, the Bible just gets cobbled together, bits rammed together, maybe in the Gospels at least. It's never true. Context is always important. We saw it there. The little children come to him and the disciples turn them away, do you remember? But Jesus says, no. Let the little children come. In fact, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. What does he mean? Does he mean you have to be little like a child? Well, no, probably not. Does he mean you have to be innocent? Like a child. Well, I want to say, of course not. If you've got children, ever heard children, have ever stood near children, you'll know innocent is one thing they rarely are. So what does he mean? I take it he means you need to be completely dependent like a little child. You need to come to him and you need to stay with him just as those little children did Jesus. And you notice this rich man doesn't. They're held together as contrast. You don't come on your terms, but his terms. 
not on your strength, but his strength. Not thinking you contribute anything, anything at all, but instead, like my little Isabel comes to me, hands lifted up, completely dependent on me to raise her. Being right with God is not about what you do, it's about who you depend on. And I want to say, in a world where performance matters, that is both extremely offensive and a huge relief. It's offensive because it tells us, all of us, we cannot make the grade. We cannot and never will be good enough. And it's a huge relief because then it tells us we never, ever have to. I don't know about you, but in the treadmill of performance, I just get tired. I get tired of trying to perform and I get tired of pretending to everyone else that I can do it. Jesus says, you don't have to. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. See, the one thing this man lacks is the one thing this man needs. And what's that? It's Jesus as he's number one. Jesus is the one he lives for. Because in the end, that's what it means to depend on Jesus. To have him in top place. Jesus as our number one source of security. What makes you feel safe? Jesus as our number one source of status. What makes you feel special? Jesus as our number one sort of source of satisfaction. What makes you feel happy? Because depending on Jesus means letting him be the ultimate answer to all of those questions. See, depending on Jesus means letting go of whatever else is stopping you from clinging to him. That's why Jesus asked this man to do this thing. That's why he tells him, verse 21, let go of what's stopping you. Come, follow me. Jesus tells him to make a choice. There's a great story I heard once back in the youth group days about some hunted monkeys in Africa. Now, it's one of those stories, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's one of the stories you don't check out because you just like telling it and you kind of hope it is. See, apparently what happened was there was these native uh, hunters in Africa and they come up with this clever way of trapping monkeys. Uh, what, what they would do is they'd get a coconut, they'd cut it in half and they'd hollow it out. And then they'd cut a hole in one side uh, just big enough for a monkey's hand to get through but too small for an orange. Then they put an orange inside, stitch it back together and hang it from a tree. And then along would come the monkey. And he would smell the orangey goodness. He would scamper on up and he would see the orangey goodness. And, and then he'd reach in his hand, he'd hold the orange. But of course, once he had it, he couldn't get his hand back out again. And, then, and while he was struggling and straining to hold on to this treasure and keep the treasure, along came the hunter. And he would struggle and strain to keep its treasure and along came the hunter and of course the monkey had a choice he could keep holding on to the treasure in his hand or he could let go and have life he could try to keep living for this thing he was clinging to or he could avoid monkey stew 
well, this guy's not about to let go of his orange. He's not about to let go of what he's worked all his life so hard for. And so what instead does he do? He does the only other thing he can do. He walks away from Jesus. He chooses the orange instead of life. Not that this surprises Jesus. You notice there, verse 23. He knows how hard it will be for the rich to choose him over their wealth, which has to be a warning to everybody in our country and our suburb. In fact, more than hard, hard, Jesus says, you notice there, it will be impossible. Something like trying to squeeze a big, dirty camel through the eye of a tiny needle, that's how hard it will be, even for those who look like they could buy heaven. In fact, especially for those who look like they could buy heaven. Entry into the kingdom is utterly impossible. Well, this is all too much for the disciples. You see there, verse 26. Verse 26, and they say, who then can be saved? I mean, surely if, if, if anyone has any hope of being successful in the next life, it's those who are successful in this life. If anyone has any hope of being blessed into the next life, it must be those whom God has apparently blessed in this life. And if they can't do it, what hope do any of us have? I take it that's the disciples' question. And Jesus replies, none. There is no hope for any of us. Unless God is on your side. Unless God has another way that does not depend on our performance. He's going to tell us that way in a moment. But first, I reckon a fair question would be, is it worth it? You're telling me that depending on Jesus means letting go of everything else that might otherwise come first, everything else that the world calls treasure, even the fabulous wealth of this rich young ruler, is it worth it? You know, I take it that's what Peter's question there is, verse 28. We've done that. We have left everything, he says. Was it worth it? Jesus replies, yes, it most certainly is. God will not shortchange you. He is not a bad investment. Knowing God, receiving life from him is worth, you see, a hundred times whatever you give up. Even with the promised persecutions, verse 30, even if it means coming last in this life, verse 31, true life, the best life, is a life lived right with God. But if you want to get right with God, if you want to stay right with God, then you've got to depend on Jesus. Because being right with God, it's not about what you do, it's about who you depend on. It's about depending on the Jesus who will do what he promised in the very next verses. The context again, verse 33, do you see it? Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they'll condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise here is Jesus' performance here is the alternative to our performance here is the way God has made for us to be right and more than that to stay right with him this is why we depend only on him never ourselves left to ourselves we will not will never be acceptable to God Left to ourselves, we've made him our enemy and his enemy he would stay. But in God, 
in the sending of his son to live in our place, die in our place, rise as our king. God has made the way possible. He alone has made a way for us to be acceptable to him. God is willing to accept Jesus' performance in the place of ours. That's Jesus' point. You know, the War Memorial in Canberra. And on the uh, memorial, is that what they call it? Memorial Drive on the way out of Canberra. You, you can read the story of Corporal John French. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for bravery in World War II. And, and I'll tell you why. Here's the description from the memorial. I'll read it to you. At Milne Bay on the afternoon of September 4, 1942, a company of Australian soldiers attacked a Japanese position. There they encountered intense machine gun fire. Corporal French's section was was held up by three enemy machine gun posts. It was then that French, ordering the rest of his section to take cover, advanced alone and silenced one of those posts with grenades. He then returned to his section for more grenades and, and silenced the second post. Then, armed only with a Thompson machine gun, he attacked the third post firing from the hip as he went forward. He was seen to be badly hit, but he continued to advance. Finally, the firing stopped. The section pushed up the hill to find all three enemy posts had been silenced and that Corporal John French had died in front of the third pit doing it. Corporal John French laid down his life for the sake of his men. Multiply that by about a million times and that's what Jesus has done for us. He went ahead of us. He advanced in our place. His life secures our life. It's only by his performance that we can be right with God. And there really is no other way. I mean, do you really think Corporal John French would have attacked those machine gun posts at the cost of his life if there was just another way around? Of course not. Could we ever really think that if by our performance we could get ourselves right with God, that he would send his son to die in our place? Of course not. See, if you're here with us this morning and you've not yet turned to Jesus, put your trust in Jesus, given your life for him, then all the rest of us here who have already done that, we urge you with everything in us to do it. We would love you to find the relief that we have found in him. To give up trying by your own performance to work your way into God's good books. Don't do it. Trust in this performance instead. And of course, if you're with us this morning, and most of us will be this person, and you have turned to Jesus, and you do trust in Jesus, and you have given your life to him, then we've got to be encouraged by this part of his word to keep doing that, and only that. Over the last few months, the the staff team at Deacon have been reading a great book uh, by the uh, American Presbyterian uh, Tim Keller. And he's been reminding us how easy it is for Christians to slide back into depending on our performance to make us acceptable to God. Those who once saw it was only Jesus 
who could make us right with him, then slide back into thinking, I did the quiet time, God is pleased with me. I've done my prayers, God is pleased with me. I've come to church, God is pleased with me. As if those are the things, or any other thing, is the thing that makes us acceptable to God. It's a danger for us. So many of us start as the prodigal, end as the older brother. Start knowing we were forgiven much and loving much and end up bitter like the Pharisees. Working for our salvation, we must avoid. It was grace from the beginning. It's grace to the end. It was Christ from the beginning. It'll be Christ to the end. We never, ever, ever as Christian men and women behave so that we only and we always behave because of because of what Jesus has already done, because of our new identity in him, because of our complete, unchanging, unaltering acceptance by God in Jesus. Because not of what we do or ever will do, but because we depend on him. It's in a world where performance matters. I'm massively encouraged. I hope you are too. That Jesus says, God says, the Holy Spirit says by his word, being right with God, getting right with God, staying right with God to the end, it's not and never is about what we do. It's always about who we depend upon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you. We do not need to fear being unacceptable to you if we trust in him because we know our acceptance is found only in him. Our Father, thank you too that in a world that constantly measures us, tests us, judges us by our performance, we know that you measure us, test us and judge us by the Lord Jesus and his performance is perfect. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are always and ever will be 10 out of 10 with you because Jesus was and is and will always be. 10 out of 10 with you, and we thank thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.